Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church Newburn podcast. My name is Paul Scott Chernitsky, and I am joined again. She's been, you know, we've had guest speakers here in our podcast. We are joined by my co-host, as always, almost, Anna. I'm so glad to be back, though I was delighted for our guest podcasters. Is it podding? Yeah, is it podding? Podding with two Ds? We don't know. I don't know. And we can't look it up on the internet. We just have to talk this one out. Um, I looked it up on the internet. What did it say? Um, I found it both ways. Okay. Uh, so we had um, Day One as yes. a guest last episode. If you haven't listened, go back and check it out. And then the one before that was the... Was, Seniors. Was Hinkley. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so Hinkley and Brinson. That was a powerful duo. That was fun. And so we're back in your office. We're in between services. Uh, a lot going on because it's about to be Holy Week. It is. Um, if you haven't been to a Lenten lunch, they continue... Um, did yeah, you, who's wait, did the you, speaker? Who's who, the speaker I, this week? I, I, it's a really good speaker. I don't know. I am fascinated by the program. I cannot wait. In fact, I may not sleep between now and then. I'm so excited Turns about it. Turns out it is yours truly, <laughs> Paul Scott Chernitsky, talking about a pilgrimage in Spain and Europe, hiking um, the Camino de Santiago, which is, uh, I'm not, I don't want to talk about it because I don't want to give it away. I'm looking forward to it. I, that's a pilgrimage I would like to take. Does this mean last time, last week you did yours? I did. What did you end up talking about? I, well, I brought pictures from my trip to India. Okay. <laughs> and then I said, but that's not what I'm talking about. And I talked about the failure of my backpacking trip. And it, it went well. And then when it was done, I said, can I never talk about this ever again? Great. Yeah. Okay, well, good. Yeah, so I'll be talking about this uh, trail in Europe. And um, I, I did this trail years ago with, uh, not that long ago, but with my mother. And so uh, even if you don't like hiking, it's going to be a great talk. And even if you never imagined going to Europe and hiking for 70 miles. My mom wanted everyone to know, you can do it. Yes, and but there are food stops and you sleep. You don't camp. You're not in tents. You're staying in hostels and such, right? Yeah, and because of that, you don't have to have a heavy backpack. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my mother did it. Um, she's retired. You know, she did it. She um, likes, to, likes to hike, but yeah, it's totally doable. So I'm excited to talk. And then the Holy Week schedule, we mentioned it in the YouTube and in, in, the, in the sermon or in church today. What's up with the Holy Week schedule at First Prez? Well, we have Palm Passion Sunday next Sunday, April 2nd. Then we have services on Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday. They're both at, they are both at 7 o'clock. So the Monday, Thursday will be our communion service. And then Good Friday will be Tenebrae. So that is where we gradually extinguish the lights as we move into darkness. Traditionally, well, in the past, we've combined those services and done them on Thursday, but there's such beautiful music and they're so significant. We wanted to have two services. And then Easter morning, 8.30 in the sanctuary and weather permitting, 11 o'clock outdoors. If you have any question about what the weather is going to be like, if we're switching it, we will put it on the website pretty early, but we're counting on really nice weather. Now, I will say we're doing something a little different with our video. For the video services during Holy Week, we're going to have a brief devotional each day. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, there will be just a few minutes, a time of devotion on YouTube um, for anyone who wants to tune in every day. We're not going to do videos of our Monday and Thursday and Good Friday, but we will have our pre-recorded services like usual on Palm Sunday and Easter. That was probably very confusing, um, but... But where could they find all these details so easily? These details are on the website or on our YouTube page. Yes. 
Uh, okay, and then as far as um, the sermon goes for this week, like it's an exciting one. I, in fact, it was one of those things, I was so excited about it, I was worried I was going to mess it up, because I, I cared so deeply about wanting to communicate this really exciting message. I got sort of um, Indiana Jones vibes from the book that you bring up, mm-hmm. and these sisters. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay, just to like, uh, a couple of questions, and you can only answer with one sentence responses. <laughs> Is that because the video sermon is a little bit lengthy? Yeah, and also because I mean, the you're about to hear the service on this podcast, so yes. like you got to hear it for yourself. But okay, um, what's up with Martha? Martha and Mary are sisters in the Gospel of Luke. They might have added Martha to the John 11 passage, where it was originally only intended to be Mary and Lazarus. Perfect segue. What's up with this Lazarus guy? Lazarus is a dear friend of Jesus. He gets sick. They tell Jesus, and Jesus says, this is not going to lead to death. This is going to bring glory to God. Lazarus dies, put in the cave in the tomb. Jesus calls him out, and he is raised from the dead. Uh, the sisters, uh, this book, um, what's the book about? Is it? Uh, w- tell me about the book. The Sisters of Sinai is a wonderful book about two Scottish sisters in the 19th century who go in search around the world for biblical texts and find, they make really important discoveries. Um, but the thing I love is this quote where they say, we don't need to be afraid of finding out new things about the Bible. Um, that won't shake our faith. It should call us deeper into the text to realize that God is still God. Perfect. Those are perfect three sentences to get you get your mind in the game yeah. for the sermon that you're about to listen to. Yeah, it's a, it's a fun one. And I love telling, I love that book. So it was fun. I probably talk about it too much. Um, it's a long story intro, but I just love those sisters because they're stubborn. And I think that they might have appreciated knowing this tidbit about Mary and Martha. Yeah, and I will link the book in the in the mm-hmm. podcast notes. So go ahead and check it out for yourself. I I want to send that book to my mom because I think she'll love it. Sounds like really cool. Yes, and it was introduced. I found it because one of our members presented it at the summer Sunday school class. Read this book, which introduces people to fun books that they didn't. I didn't know anything about. It was published years ago. Had never heard of it until a church member told me about it. All right. Well, everyone, we hope you have a great week, and I hope to see you live in person with Paul Scott Chernitsky at the Lenten <laughs> Lunch. That's me. And uh, if not, uh, we will um, talk to you next week. Thanks, Paul Scott. I am grateful for you. Let us pray. Almighty God, in your word, we hope. In your word we hope, in your word we find life. As we turn now to your word, help us to set aside our distractions, set aside the things that pull us away from you, that we might hear your word and follow you. We ask it in your name. Amen. The lectionary text for today comes from the Gospel of John. It is the 11th chapter, and the lectionary reading for today includes 45 verses. It is the story of the resurrection of Lazarus. Lazarus brought back from death to life. It is an amazing reading. There is so much richness, so many sermons to be preached from this text. 
But today, since I'll be focusing primarily on the first verses, I am going to read those now and invite you, encourage you to read the entire passage at some point today or during this week for your own meditation and contemplation. But now let us hear the first five verses of the Gospel of John, the 11th chapter. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the best books I've read recently is a book that was given to me by church member Stacy Griffith. It's a book that she shared in our summer Sunday school series, Read This Book, several years ago. If you don't know about that Sunday school class we have in the summer, it's delightful and wonderful. You would be more than welcome to attend on Zoom or lead a class. Um, but this is a book that she shared. It's entitled, The Sisters of Sinai, How Two Lady Adventurers Discovered the Hidden Gospels by Janet Saskis. It's not a surprise that I liked this book. It's about two Scottish sisters, identical twins, who are smart and stubborn, Agnes and Margaret Smith. They lived in the 19th century. And in the 19th century, they did not let societal conventions stop them from what they believed was their faithful call to live into this world. Now, Margaret and Agnes were unfortunate in some ways and fortunate in others. Their mother died when they were infants, and then their father died when they were young adults. Their father had become quite wealthy. He left them a great fortune, and he left it to them with one stipulation, that they always live together. And so Margaret and Agnes lived together for their entire lives. They married, they stayed together, and they explored. They studied, even though this was a time when women were not allowed to receive a university education, they found tutors, they learned multiple languages. And all of this learning that they pursued had one goal in mind, to glorify God. For Margaret and Agnes were deeply Presbyterian, deeply sought to be faithful. They spent their entire Sundays in church. When they did build a house, they built it so that they could host Bible studies and bring in different preachers to share the good news with people. They were classically Presbyterian and all of their learning, they wanted to use it to bring God glory. And one of the ways they did that was through traveling to explore and bring to light sacred texts that would further illumine the glory of God and the word of God and the life of Jesus Christ. These two women traveled often quite scandalously without a chaperone. 
They traveled abroad, they traveled to the Sinai where they discovered one of the rarest copies of the Gospels that had been discovered to that point. Now I want to point out that Agnes and Margaret were so deeply pious and faithful in all of their travels. They did something that most of us would never even consider. They stopped on Sundays. They wanted to follow scripture. And so even though they were traveling, they would stop everything and claim Sunday for a Sabbath day. But at this um, monastery, they found this very rare text on a papyrus on a different kind of paper. Now it had been in this library for centuries. It had been hidden and most people did not know what it was. And they didn't know because paper being so rare, it had been written on top of. There was an entire separate book written on top of this book that was one of the earliest copies of all four gospels in one place that in the late 19th century, anyone had yet found. It took multiple trips to Egypt at a time when very few people did this at all, much less women independently putting together search parties and research parties. They spent months at a time at the monastery. The first time they used very rudimentary photographs to take that back to confirm that they had found what they thought they had found. And then with others, they went back. And because the text could not be removed from the monastery, should not be removed from the monastery, they then transcribed the entire thing by hand in languages they had to learn along the way. Now it's hard for me to wrap my mind around this, but it is important to remember that even though I have a Bible, you likely have a Bible, and in it we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and all of the scriptures in one place, that's not how the Bible really comes to us. There are hundreds of copies of each of these original texts, hundreds of copies. The originals no longer in existence because either the stories were told for so long before they were ever written down, or the original copies were shared so much they later disintegrated. What we have instead are copies and copies of copies and copies of copies of copies. And through those copies, scholars for centuries have put together the text we know as the Bible. There are quite literally hundreds of copies of each gospel, some of them the gospel in its entirety, some of them snippets as small as a verse, each one helping us understand what the original evangelists wrote, how the Holy Spirit worked through them to reach out to us. But not surprisingly, when you have that many different copies, not all versions are the same. And so throughout the centuries, scholars have gone back to those original texts and they have discerned best as they could what the intent was, what the words say. Sometimes it is incredibly clear if you have one variation and 400 consistent texts, it is obvious what choice to make. And other times it's not so clear and they have to rely on each other and community and all the things we love in the Reformed tradition about bringing our minds as well as our hearts to the study and glory of God. But why are there differences? Well, sometimes it's just an accident. 
people who copy things over and over and over again sometimes accidentally make a change. And then the next person copying it sees only the thing that was accidentally changed and they repeat it. Sometimes, however, scribes intentionally made a change. Either they thought it made the story more clear or they saw something that they wanted to shift a little bit and so they made the choice to make a change. Now this is not particularly surprising. After all, one of the things we know is that we have four different versions of Jesus's life in our canon. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We don't think that that is an issue because each one amplifies and glorifies and exemplifies a different aspect of Jesus's life. We don't look to them to be entirely consistent or the same because each one is a place where the Holy Spirit meets and leads us. But back to Margaret and Agnes Smith, the Scottish sisters who stubbornly pursued their faith and this research. They found this ancient manuscript that had the four Gospels together, and it was controversial. There were people who were highly upset at what they were finding because some of the language was slightly different from what people had gotten used to reading in their Bibles. And there were particular sections that maybe shed a slightly different light on how Jesus came to be born, how he came into this world. And here's my favorite part about this book that I read. Agnes and Margaret, deeply faithful Agnes and Margaret, who studied and wanted to glorify God and who sought to follow scripture and their Lord and everything that they did, they put their health and their safety on the line to pursue their research. When they were asked about whether or not they might be doing damage to people who wanted to come to faith by presenting that there might be different ways to understand the text, said this, and they said this over 200 years ago. They said, for the very variants which frightened the weak-minded among us acts as a stimulant to others, inciting them to search the scripture more diligently, to eliminate the mistakes of the copyists and to ascertain what it was that the evangelists originally really wrote. Originally really wrote. These two women, these two 19th century women, a product of their time for sure, were not scared of what their research would reveal because they were people of faith. And they knew that God was going to meet them in the words that they found. They knew that understanding the complexities of Scripture was not a weakness, it was a superpower. Which brings us to today's text and the work of Elizabeth Schrader. Elizabeth Schrader, a graduate of General Theological Seminary, a PhD candidate at Duke University, who will be graduating this spring and has already accepted a position as an assistant professor of New Testament at Villanova University has in the last couple of years revealed some amazing research that has to do with our text for today. She, when she was at General Theological Seminary, as a student of the Gospels, as a student, a Greek and New Testament student, started to look at some of the older papyrus, some of the older texts that we have for the Gospels. And she particularly was drawn to one of the oldest ones that we have. It's called Papyrus 66. It's one of the oldest versions that we have of the Gospel of John, and it has been dated to something around the year 200. And when she studied it, 
in this chapter 11 portion, she found something odd or something that she thought was odd. And in it, this 11th chapter of John, she found several places where the name Mary was crossed out and Martha was written in or a place where Mary was crossed out and a phrase meaning the sisters was written in. Now this in and of itself isn't entirely new. This was not a discovery in the traditional sense because other scholars had noted that this was here, that there was Papyrus 66 that had some abnormalities, but no one had really ever studied it or wondered what it meant or brought new light to it. Well, Libby Schrader began to do just that. She started looking at other copies of John. And in the end, at this point, she's looked at over 280 versions of our ancient texts that include the Gospel of John. And in it, she has found that over one third of them, including the oldest ones that we have, include abnormalities when it comes to Mary and Martha and that either Martha is not in there at all, never included, it is only Mary, or that Mary is crossed out in some places and Martha is added. She's then gone on to look at other resources. She's looked at ancient art, she's gone to ancient commentaries, and she has found there too places where the art created around this story includes only one woman, Mary, or commentators or pilgrims who have told this story and included only Mary. And that leads to the question, is there a Martha at all? Or is it only Mary and Lazarus? Well, why Martha? Why is Martha chosen to include here? Well, that answer is probably fairly simple because Martha and Mary were already a duo that was known to the writers. Mary and Martha, the sisters that we know in Luke, where Jesus visits and Martha is busy taking care of everyone and Mary sits at Jesus's feet. So if you're going to add a sister for Mary, it made sense that they would have added Martha. But why is it significant? Why is it significant that someone would have added a character to this story that was not there originally? Well, the answer to that comes later in the 11th chapter of John. Jesus said to her, said to Martha in our current version, but possibly not Martha. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah. It is a significant proclamation whenever anyone proclaims in the Gospels that Jesus is Lord, particularly someone acknowledging, as so many struggle to do, that Jesus would indeed die and rise again. That is a significant proclamation of faith. And when it is said by Martha, a woman who appears in John only here and does not have another role here, 
It's easily forgotten. It is an occasional utterance. But when it is said by Mary, who is very possibly Mary Magdalene, who appears throughout the Gospels, it's a whole other thing. Mary Magdalene, whose name might not refer to where she was from, but instead might be a name that was given to her by Jesus. We have Peter, the rock on which the church was built. One of the possible translations of Mary Magdalene is Mary the Tower. What if this proclamation of faith by Mary is one more way of showing that she was a greater partner in ministry to Jesus than many of us had ever imagined? a partner in evangelism and faith before she was at the cross and the tomb and had a central role. Again, it's not just the text that hints that Mary was the central character here and not Martha. We can go through ancient art and pilgrims and other writings and find that often Mary and Lazarus are the only ones with Jesus in this story. So why would the early scribes change it? If it was written to be Mary and Lazarus, what motivation would they have for changing it? Well, it's not surprising there are some theories about this, and these are just theories. There's nothing evidentiary to tell us this. But it's possible that there were some who weren't fans of how Jesus treated and respected and worked with women and wanted to minimize their role in the early church. It's possible that they had that intent to limit women, but not necessarily. We do not need to prescribe a malicious motive here. It's entirely possible it was not malicious at all. It's entirely possible that this was a scribe who dearly loved Jesus and wanted to be a faithful disciple and was fearful that so much dramatic change would threaten to topple the entire endeavor rather than keeping the gospel alive. And so they tried to make it a little bit more palatable. It's also possible that it was a scribe who dearly loved the gospel of John, which is arguably the most unlike the other gospels and wanted it desperately to be included in the canon and knew that pulling a little bit back from Mary Magdalene would make that possible. It's possible that it was a pure intent out of love for Jesus that they made this change. I think we can understand that. John Calvin, after all, when he was forming the church that we now know as the Presbyterian Church, believed that we should celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper each and every time we gathered for worship, each and every time we celebrated the sacrament of, each and every time we heard the word read and proclaimed, we should celebrate the sacrament. Only as he started this church, he knew and other people told him that for people who had not been taking communion, but for maybe once a year, maybe once every other year, to all of a sudden go to celebrating communion each and every week, well, it threatened to capsize the ship instead of just rocking the boat a little bit. And so Calvin compromised in order to keep the boat afloat. So we don't know. We don't know why a scribe might have changed this, but we do know that this is a significant shift in the text. And we can give the other people the benefit of the doubt. But now that the Holy Spirit is revealing this work before us, it raises a question. 
It raises a question and I believe invites us, invites us to look more deeply, invites us to delve ever further in scripture to see what treasures it has in store, what treasures are there that we have not yet uncovered. This is a beautiful reminder that the Word of God is a living Word, a place where we don't encounter firm letters on a page, but a place where we encounter God, and a place where God encounters us. And a reminder that God is not done with us and that we are not done learning. We are not ever done learning. Throughout the centuries, the Bible has always continued to instruct us and unfold new understandings before us about how God is present with us in our lives. Even in recent history, we can see how our understanding of the Word of God has shifted and how it has illumined new pathways before us as we see how we have understood things differently across time, found new treasures in the text that have helped us to condemn slavery, invite women into the pulpit, to see sexuality in different ways, and still new things that I don't even know what God has in store. And God keeps showing up here to remind us we need not fear, for God is with us. And God is still God. Or as Paul reminds us, and now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, and the greatest of these is love. What love has yet to be uncovered in Scripture? It also, I believe, begs a question of us. How do we respond to change? How do we respond to new information? How do we respond to a new picture that maybe reveals something that we didn't see before and that the landscape might not be quite what we thought the day before? Do we dig in? Do we deny the change? Do we try and go back to what we thought it was? I know far too often I dig in my heels because change is hard and the world is changing so rapidly and sometimes I just want places like the church to be like an anchor or an island in the storm when instead that's not what God promises us at all. Instead, Scripture and faith in Jesus constantly remind us that as disciples, faith is not an anchor but a centerboard that helps us guide the way. That faith is like the sail into which the Holy Spirit breathes, sending us where God wants us to go. And this text and this research done by Libby Schrader, which I will have footnotes in the sermon if you'd like to see more of her work or understand it more completely, for I am only including very little detail here. But I can't help but wonder how this might help me embrace change in new ways not as fearful of a storm, but to see it as a gift. For as Jesus says in this text, this illness does not lead to death, but rather for God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. What if we could see the changes we understand in the text in that way, as Jesus says, not as an illness, but a way through which God can be brought glory. What if it is not only Lazarus to whom Jesus is referring, or John is referring, but also to the text, corrupted and now brought back to life? 
for you in your own life, for me in my own life, I think about times when I have been confronted with significant change. When I was in my 20s and my parents announced that they would be getting a divorce and how much time I wasted in denying it or refusing to accept it, how much time I wasted in fighting what they had told me and believing that by my sheer force of will, I could turn back time and make this not happen or the friend who told me of the terrible diagnosis that I just couldn't accept, and so I didn't go to visit. Lost opportunities for relationship, or the history I denied even though it was right in front of me and the hurt that that caused, or how many people I know who refuse to make the doctor's appointment and pretend as though nothing is wrong. They cannot face it. Now, I think this new study of the 11th chapter of John is very possibly the biggest revelation of scriptural study that I have experienced in my lifetime. I am really excited about what this opens up. But even if this kind of textual study doesn't butter your bread or pecan your pie, I believe it provides for us a larger metaphor for life, for faith, and for change to help us see that receiving new information need not be feared. It is not a weakness. It is, in fact, our superpower. For each of us is like one of the old blind men in the Indian parable going to touch the elephant, each sure that what we feel is right, a wall or a spear, a snake or a tree, when in fact none of us is in possession of the full picture. And in fact, it is only God who can see it all. There is good news in knowing that we do not know it all, that now we see only in part, and that God is the one who is sharing the fuller picture, and that God is still God, and that God is still speaking, whether it is Mary and Martha and Lazarus, or only Mary and Lazarus. God is still speaking, and God is not done with us yet. For we are people of faith, once reformed, always reforming. And that is good news. Now, before I close, I want to read to you Libby Schrader's reconstruction of the text based on her work. And there was a certain sick man, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, his sister. Now, this was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore Mary sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, the one you love is sick. But when Jesus heard, he said to her, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son might be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Lazarus and his sister. Amen.
Go out into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Return no one evil for evil. Reach out to the fearful. Comfort the lonely. Sing, hope, pray, and laugh. And may God create in us bountiful souls. May Jesus Christ walk beside us. And may the Holy Spirit add a dance to our steps. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.